Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Nathan. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today for the first time, we are on day 49, so almost day 50. What a, what a rush. That is, 49 is almost 50. <laughs> That's, you know, I don't know, I, 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 full disclosure, listeners, I tested in the 16th percentile in math when I did my college entrance exams, but I do know... That 49 is at least close to 50. Pretty good. You should also know that that line is in the notes. 49 is almost 50. No, not quite. No, but not what are you going to do? Uh, also, if you have any questions, we love answering them. So go ahead and email your questions into info at grove.church with the subject line, a Let's Read the Bible podcast question. That way we actually, you know, we can get it to you. Uh, that's going to be the best way to do it. Nathan, welcome back. Thank you. Episode Thank you. two this season. This season, yep. Episode three overall episode four that you've prepped for because of my <laughs> horrid mistake last year, but you know. All good. All, all is forgiven, and we can now get started on the Old Testament. Yeah, we're setting out to to make this not a two-hour podcast this time. For that's all the dream. The yes, that's the dream. Well, here we go. All right, well, we're back in everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus, and we are, <laughs> we're continuing on this week with the rules regarding sacrifices. And so, I mean, we, we talked about it a little bit last week. Again, it's dry. It, it, it's a little bit hard to read, but think about for a moment what it would have been like for the Israelites to be receiving this covenant uh, and also think about how this points to Jesus. Those are like the two things I try to keep in mind most when I'm reading through this part of mm-hmm. the Bible. Uh, and so these are very specific as far as what is to be done with each part of the sacrificed animal. So it's not just, you know, sometimes we think of sacrifices, you know, you kill the bull, put it on the altar and you burn it and that's the sacrifice. Like, no, it's it's actually, it's very specific about each part of the animal has a different thing that's going on with it. The, even the way that you drain the blood out of the animal is a very specific thing. So, and, and again, the point here is that God is holy and he should be worshiped the way that he deserves to be worshiped and the way mm-hmm. that he wants to be worshiped. So he's giving very specific rules there. Uh, there's also rules as to what the priests get to eat themselves versus what must either be burnt at the altar or discarded outside of the camp. So remember a lot of the offerings, it's not that all of it is consumed by fire. Some of it is consumed by the priests because the priests, they're not farmers, they're they're priests. And as uh, someone someone pointed out in a question, uh, we did a Q&A podcast or we did a Q&A at our church last week about mm-hmm. kind of studying the Bible. And someone asked the question of what the deal, what's the deal with all of the sacrifice? It just goes on and on and <laughs> yeah. on. Uh, yeah. When you think about the scale of the sacrifice that's happening, being a priest is a full-time job. You are offering yeah. sacrifices all day until you clock out. So it makes sense that they have to have food provided for them. Uh, so anyways, the other big topic that comes up is what is clean versus unclean. So really interesting. Uh, one interesting point that I noticed is that on the third day after a sacrifice, the sacrifice becomes unclean. So the priests are allowed to eat the um, the meat of a sacrifice on the day it's sacrificed, the next day. But at the start of the third day, it's unclean. And if they haven't mm-hmm. eaten it, it must be thrown outside of the camp, uh, which I thought was really interesting because Jesus rises on the third day and he is kind of the ultimate sacrifice. So this isn't you know necessarily said specifically, but part of me thinks of... Um, it's it's showing that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice because on the third day, when traditionally the sacrifice mm-hmm. would be officially marked as unclean, all of a sudden Jesus rises. He's exalted on the third day. Mm-hmm. He's not made unclean on the third day. So not that anyone was going to eat Jesus' flesh or anything like that, but it just kind of made me think about it. I don't know. Weird zombie humor there, I guess. I mean, it, you could, it depends on your theology around the Eucharist, you know? That's true. 
for our for our Catholics brothers, for Catholic brothers and sisters, <laughs> and I think Orthodox as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Transubstantiation, all that jazz. All right, well, moving into chapter eight, we see Aaron and his sons consecrated before the Lord and the assembly of the people. This is done precisely how God commanded it. You're going to notice the theme throughout all of Leviticus as we read it. Uh, And the point is to show the people of Israel that Yahweh is holy. And again, he's going to be worshiped the way exactly as he commands. And the priests have been chosen for this role and they are to take it seriously. So this isn't just some sort of flippant shaman or whatever you Mm -hmm. want to say. Uh, the, I think, I think the fact that there's an exact outfit that has to be worn in the exact mm-hmm. way and you put it on in this exact order. And then only after all of that, do you go offer sacrifices? I think what God is communicating to the priests in those moments is this is your job. You are to take it incredibly seriously. Yeah. Uh, and I think there, that's kind of the power of ritual, right? Is it's, it's the power of remembering that this is something that's been, obviously these priests are doing it for the first time, but as you get later on to Israel's history, I think the power of that ritual is I'm doing things the exact same way my fathers before me did this yeah. and it feeling the weight of all of those generations of priests. So yeah, that, that takes us through the first couple of chapters that we're reading through today. Yeah. Moving into um, chapter nine, I think just like, just like you said about having that in the back of your mind of how everything points to Jesus. I like to have something in the back of my mind when it comes to reading about all the sacrifices, cause it can get just really dreary, like, okay, why do I need to know 50 different ways to do the same sacrifice and then repeat it a chapter later? So for me, what's been really helpful is to um, continuously remind myself of where we are in the narrative um, of the whole story and where the Jews are at while they're reading this. So I'm just going to give kind of a recap of the Torah really quickly, if that's okay. Really quick, Nathan, what do you mean by Torah? The Torah, the Torah is the first five books uh, of the Bible. This is um, considered one of like the if you were talking to an ancient Hebrew who was studying the the Jewish belief system, this would be like uh, one one. This is like everything the the most core foundational belief. Yeah. Well, um, if you have they hold, I was going to say if you have Jewish friends today, this is what they refer to as. Oh the, yeah, they use the word Torah to refer to what we would call the Pentateuch or the Law. Yes, or I mean, Torah is not a bad word either. We can call it that as well. But yes, yeah. we just want to make sure for our listeners who maybe weren't aware. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just kind of where we are in the narrative, and again, why all of these sacrifices matter to us. Um, we're on the third book of the those first five books. The the Pentateuch or the Torah. Um, in the first book, it covers the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve, uh, sin against God, and they make themselves unclean. And because of that, they can't enter in to, um, to the presence of a holy God. And this is a super important thing to understand. Um, when, they're, when they're taken out of the presence of God or cast out of the garden, God does make a promise to them um, that through Eve's offspring, there's going to be a way to reconcile that relationship. And so there's this hope of God's people entering back into his presence. And so for the rest of the book of the Bible, that's what we're keeping. That hope is what we're keeping in our mind. And so you follow the sons of, uh, of Eve down through Abraham and kind of narrows this pro- a promise down to the people of Israel. Um, and eventually those people in Israel, as we know too, in the second book of the Bible, they end up in Egypt. Um, and then we just read about how God takes them out of the land of Egypt. And that kind of brings us to a little bit more of where we are in this story, where God is establishing his rule over his people, Israel. And you think that this is it, where it's like, okay, this is where it's going to happen. People are going to be allowed in the presence of God. Um, but something really interesting happens if you watched the, um, let's re- uh, sorry, not let's read the Bible, um, oh. the Bible project. Oh, the video on the... Yeah, yep. it talks about this. Something really weird happens at the end of Exodus where... Um, 
you know, uh, they, they build the tabernacle according to God's rule and God's presence fills the tabernacle. But when God's presence is in there, even Moses isn't allowed into the presence of God. So like the best that Israel has to offer in a lot of ways of how we would think about it, he still isn't allowed to be in the presence of God. And so we go into Leviticus thinking of like, how, how is it going to be that an unholy people is going to be allowed into the entrance into, into the presence of God. Right. Right. That's the question that you leave with. So when we're reading through all of these sacrifices, this is how this ceremonial cleansing of Egypt or of um, Israel is going to take place. So that's kind of where we are. That's the quick overview. That's what I like to keep in my head of like, how are people going to get back with God? Right. That's a great, that's a great point. Um, Cool. Yeah. So moving into Leviticus nine, um, God teaches Moses all of these sacrifices. And in chapter nine, the the real ritualistic and symbolic cleansing of Israel begins here. Um, Aaron, the high priest, first cleanses himself, and then he cleanses the people following the instruction exactly how God gave it to Moses. Um, and after this is done, Aaron and Moses go into the tent and they offer these offerings before God. God shows his glory to all of the people um, by you know, uh, uh, some fire coming out and consuming the sacrifice, representing God, accepting this sacrifice as a good and acceptable sacrifice. And the people fall down and worship God and it's all really happy and good. And it stays that way for the rest of the Bible. Yeah, right? obviously. No, um, not at all. Moving into chapter 10, the very next sentence, um, the joy seems very, very short lived. Um, and two of Aaron's sons who are off also priests offer sacrifices to God, but not in a way that God has instructed to do him. Um, so God kills them for it, which is pretty intense. That's sad. Right? And it's kind of this weird thing where it's like, well, they were offering sacrifices, but it's not perfect. And so I, and so he kills them. It seems really extreme. And so, um, always asking yourself the question of like, what is God teaching his people through this? And I think it's exactly what you were saying that, um, the offerings, uh, in the tabernacle, it's such a good reminder of God's grace, uh, because they're allowed to put their sin on this animal that's being um, accepted as as a substitution, but also God is holy, and um, and the sacrifices that are being made need to be made in a way that God has um, instructed them. Right. It's yeah. It's a reminder to not be flippant with anything. Yeah. That God that God commands, which I mean, it's a good application for us today as well. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. I can't help but think of Uzzah, and this is obviously months down the road that we'll mm-hmm. be talking about that. But he's kind of the. Uh, He's the next person, I guess, that God kills for something like this, yeah. where it's just like he, the intentions might not have even been bad, but he's just being flippant with the Ark of the Covenant, right. and all of a sudden, boom! It, it's a yeah, it's a reminder that that God is holy for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, we jump into things, and th- this is where it gets really exciting. Uh, maybe, maybe not really. <laughs> so, chapter eleven gives us a long list of what animals are clean versus unclean to eat. Uh, some of these things I'm totally cool with. Like, you know, I've never thought about eating a seagull before. Here up in the the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> we have a lot of seagulls, and I've never I never look at them and think that's delicious. Mm-hmm. Usually, I look at them and say and Ew. think to myself, "These are my fries. You know, get away <laughs> from here. You suck." Um, it is all yeah. It is always incredible. We, me and Ashley go to Mariners games a lot and it's like the second the game is over and people get up, the seagulls just descend because they, yeah. know, they know what's happening. They know there's a bunch of leftover ivers sitting around. So that's a joke that you only get if you live here. But anyway, uh, other, other animals though, uh, I'm really happy that we live under the new covenant. Uh, bacon, amazing. I'm yep. really glad that we, ham, also really good. I'm really glad that we get to eat the unclean food, crab, clams, really just like I like anything from the ocean that's not a fish for the most part. Uh, fish is kind of touch and go for me, but like- Are all, you like a salmon guy? 
I don't, I mean, not, I like smoked salmon. Um, but like, I feel like most of the time I've had salmon, I'm kind of just like, eh, I don't know. You would have not done well as, as a Hebrew. That, yeah, I would, yes, very, very accurate. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, and thankfully the Lord knew that and I was born when I was (laughs) born. Uh, so remember that God through all of this. Because you can read these chapters and again, it's like, why do I need to know what all what animals yeah. are clean and unclean? Remember that God is setting his people apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a refrain that you're going to see a ton throughout the book of Leviticus. And so this is Leviticus 11.44. And I'm just going to quote part of it. Um, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And, and that's kind of through a bunch of the commands, that's what God is saying. He's like, I'm, I'm setting you apart. You are to be a holy nation. Because I am holy and I'm making you into a holy nation. The, the, the language that was used a couple of weeks ago was I'm making you a nation of priests or in other words, <laughs> people who can communicate directly with God. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful reminder that even in the midst of all this, that seems like what, what on earth is going on? It's, yeah. it's a reminder that God is setting apart his people. Uh, and then moving into chapter 12, we see specific laws about mothers and how they are to pur- purify themselves after childbirth. Uh, and so it's just a reminder that Sin entering the world made childbirth unclean, uh, not sinful. And I think that's mm-hmm. an important distinction. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we view things that are unclean as being automatically sinful. Like, no, like that's just yeah. kind of, uh, it's just a state. You can be in a state of cleanliness or, or versus uncle- uncleanliness. It would be a sin to just kind of remain forever in a state of uncleanliness. But the the idea of getting into it, some things make you unclean because they're legitimately sinful. Other things yeah. are just unclean because that's that's just the way God made it under the old covenant. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so there's a bunch, if you've ever wondered like, hey, if I gave birth in ancient Israel, what what does that look like? Read up. So it's just all, <laughs> all of the purification laws and how long you're supposed to wait. It is, it is all in there. Um, and I also think it's a really beautiful point that God, when God becomes man, he does not just show up in the form mm. of man. He goes through the whole thing. And so he, God enters the world as, as Christ in an unclean way. Uh, he, hmm. he enters through childbirth and it's the same type of childbirth. Like it's not this immaculate, like all of a sudden Jesus just like warps out of Mary's, yeah. Mary's womb. Uh, everything happens the, the normal way that would happen. Um, I, as much as I love the, oh, is it a little town of Bethlehem that talks about how Jesus didn't make a sound or it might be oh, a yeah. Uh I don't remember actually. It's one of the Christmas songs yeah. that's like Jesus just sits there quietly. I don't think that was the case. I think no. Jesus, I think Jesus went through the whole thing. Yeah. Um and, and and it shows that Jesus is willing to meet us where we are. Uh when when God came down and became a man, uh he did so in the exact same way that all of the rest of us ever had. And so even in the midst of, you know, the 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 laws of purity around childbirth and, and all these different uh ritual purifications that would need to happen. God still enters into the world in that way, which I think is a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, moving on into Leviticus 13, um, another really exciting chapter. Um, Leviticus 13 is a very, very detailed instruction on skin diseases, um, rashes, and mold in your house. Um, and it goes through how the priests are to identify them when they're dangerous and when they're completely harmless. Um, it's I, And I think, like you said, it's really important to make the distinction. Being unclean isn't sinful. Uh, what is sinful is being in that unclean state and then entering into the presence of a holy God, right? Right. Um, I always make the make the joke with my wife because she has eczema it's just like when she when she shows up and she has a little eczema leprosy you mean oh my goodness yes (laughs) i mean that's a fun fact i learned that from you uh maybe a couple months ago uh leprosy when we read about it in the bible isn't 
leprosy, like modern day leprosy, when right. we think about it, it's kind of this overarching um, skin disease. Yeah, skin word. disease. Yeah, like me, it could it could be many different things, and that's why um, we have this detailed instruction for how to how to treat it and how to identify it. Um, I think the the one thing that I take from these chapters that I think is really important to keep in mind is um, it's really easy for us to look at this and like kind of justify its weirdness to us and say like, oh, it was practical. Like God was teaching people about diseases and how to keep them from spreading across the entire group of people. And we're like, why did God put that in the Bible? And it's like, oh, to to keep them healthy. But, um, and and while that's true, and I believe that that's true, what it's communicating is more important than the actual like uh, health of that people. And that is that God is holy and that, um, you, you are to enter his presence. Um, even the, you know, even their sacrifice, we're supposed to be without blemish on them. Well, it's like, I've, I've heard justification for like the dietary laws before. And it's like, yeah. oh yeah, God just outlaws all of the animals that are like unhealthy or like could give you diseases. And oh, like, no. No, that's not really true. No. Like well, most of that stuff is like there's some stuff where it's like, hey, don't just eat random insects. I'm like, yep, not like, well, I guess I already said it, not tempted. But like the only animals that are really set apart as like, don't eat this because it'll give you diseases. Not that God says that, but it's like uh, scavenger birds. It's yeah. like, hey, don't eat those. And like, obviously we know today, the reason we don't eat them today is, I, I guess I don't know how they taste, but also because they've just got a ton of crazy stuff right. in there and you don't yep. want to mess around with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, um. Yeah, it's really easy for us to latch on to the practicality and forget the more important message that this is all kind of communicating. Um, moving on to Leviticus 14, um, it just covers all of those things that we learned about skin and mold. It covers how to go through the cleansing process of that after you've experienced this. Um, a few, just three notes that I take away from this chapter. One, um, it's a pretty intense process to be cleansed. Oh, yeah. Like it's kind of a, it's kind of a big deal and it seems... In, in my modern mindset, it seems excessive, but again, it's what it's communicating that God is holy and it's to be taken seriously when you enter into his presence. Second thing was being a priest is a crazy job, dude. Yeah. You, you have to do so many things that are so foreign to our minds. You have to like not only the butchering and the, the sprinkling of the blood and all of the sacrifice stuff, but you just have to like if somebody has mold on their walls, like who's on mold, moldy wall duty? You know? call, call the priest. <laughs> yeah, I know. Call the priest. Come on. Like, hey, I have this thing growing on my wall. Can you come take a look at it? Like, it's it's a crazy job to be um, a priest. You got to do a lot of stuff. It wasn't um, like, oh, I get a bunch of free stuff and live a cush life because I'm a priest. They're working really, really hard. Um, the third thing that I took away is in verse 21, um, it's going through that cleanliness process and the sacrifices that they have to make. And it says, if, however, they are poor and cannot afford these... It goes through a whole another list of instructions in how to do that in a more affordable way. Um, and I love this heart of, of God throughout his entire scripture that even in what seems to us as the strictest conditions um, to live in as a holy people, there's still so much compassion and space made for um, the poor to come before God. Um, and even we see it when Jesus flips the tables in the temple, like the thing that angers him is people keeping Right. the poor from worshiping him. So I really loved um, that in Leviticus 14. Yeah. It reminds me of last week. It's for, there's pretty much in all of the sacrifices, there's the allowance of the doves or the turtle doves yeah. that the poor can buy. And there was one, I can't, I wish I could remember which sacrifice it was. Cause I think it was one of the ones where it's like, it would be super important for you to, to offer. You can even just offer some flour and like, there's even a, uh, a carve out for like the cheapest thing you can possibly find. Yeah. That's acceptable as a sacrifice to the Lord. If you legitimately can't afford anything yeah. else. So really cool. 
Uh, we're going to jump into chapter 15. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I was really hoping that Nathan was going <laughs> to <Nathan, laughs> so yeah. draw this passage when we were reading through. Uh, this deals with what the Bible calls discharge and laws of, uh, laws of cleanliness ver- versus uh, men and women who have, who have discharged. And we'll just, we'll just keep it there, I suppose. Um, so there's different rules for both men and women in different rituals that need to be performed. Uh, there's different things that like if like, yeah, there's just a bunch of different, like if you discharge and then you sit on this thing, that thing's unclean and you also have to go wash it, all those different things. Uh, the one that's really of note to me is, or at least that, that really helps inform other parts of the Bible is reading through, um, what a woman has to do while menstruating and mm-hmm. how she needs to ritually purify herself before that. Um, all of the different clean versus unclean laws, because it helps it help for me, at least it, I immediately thought of the woman who had what what the New Testament calls a, a condition of blood, but what it seems like is happening is she'd been menstruating for about twenty years mm-hmm. nonstop, yeah. um, and so she lived in a constant state of uncleanliness yeah. for twenty years. Uh, and I think sometimes we can read that in the Gospels, and we just kind of think like, "Wow, that would be really rough." Um, Leviticus really helps us see what that would have been like. You you can imagine what this woman's life was like if she's having to go through these different things every single day. Uh, no one, she hasn't experienced the physical touch of a human in 20 years, yeah. or at least without incredible guilt and having to tell them like, hey, I'm, un- I'm unclean. Um, everything that she touches has to be ritualistically clean. Like it, it, it really helped me um, imagine what she was going through and just the gratitude she must have felt when she was healed by Jesus there. I never thought about it until you just said that, but according to the Mosaic law, then I, I believe Jesus's cloak would have had to be right. cleansed after she and he says, it. And he says, shove it. I guess I don't know if he does that for sure. Maybe afterwards he cleaned it, but I feel like in the spirit of it, Jesus yeah. was like, she's, yeah. she's fine. Well, I mean, Jesus was all about preaching, like nothing, nothing going into you can make you unclean only what's right. coming out of you can make you unclean, but yeah. No, really beautiful. Uh, chapter 16 gives us the institution of the most holy day in Judaism uh, and still to this day. So it's the day of atonement is what your translations will say. Um, or Yom Kippur, if you have uh, Jewish friends, it's it's what they celebrate as well. Uh, this is the first day of atonement, but afterwards it's instituted as an annual festival. And then next week we'll read about it. There's kind of a more detailed list of like when it's celebrated and all these different things. Uh, but it begins with the, and it, it gets a little bit, even as I was writing the outline for this, I got confused and I had to keep going back because it keeps, it says like one, the one that got me was the, the, the high priest will offer a bowl in sacrifice and then he will go through the goats and then, and then it, it goes through all of it. And then it says, and now after this the high priest will sacrifice the bull. So the way it phrases it is, is oh. even a little bit confusing for me. Mm-hmm. I had to keep going back, but I think I got the right order here. Uh, so it begins with the high priest ceremonially ceremonially washing himself and donning the priestly garments. Mm-hmm. He then chooses two goats and casts lots, and he selects one of them as the scapegoat. Uh, and so what that means is that uh, the scapegoat is going to have the... Um, well, I guess I'll I'll, I'll say what's going to happen later. So he cast lots and he chooses one as a scapegoat. The other one is just kind of the other one's just a goat, just a normal goat. Uh, he then offers a bowl of, as a sin offering for himself. So as the priest, as a personal thing that he's doing, uh, he's going to offer this bowl for his sin, so that he is like kind of like what you said. He's able to go before God and ask for the mm-hmm. forgiveness of sin of all of the people. Uh, after this he offers the non-scapegoat as a sin offering. And this is for the people, not specifically for himself. And then the scapegoat, which yes, is where we get the word scapegoat Mm -hmm. today. 
Uh, it then has the sin of the people symbolically placed upon it by the priest, and then it is sent into the wilderness to never be seen again. So the idea is that God is showing uh, that he is forgiving his people of their sin. And I, I just want to read that passage really quick. This is yeah. verses 21 and 22. It says, and Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So I, I, it's just a really, it's, it's strange to us today because obviously we have nothing like this, but it's a really yeah. beautiful picture of God's forgiveness in the midst of all of that. Uh, and then after, sorry, after this, God commands that this is not just a one-time, ato- one-time atonement. This yeah. is not just a, it's not a ritual that's supposed to happen one time. Every year it's going to be a Sabbath, a holy festival. And the high priest is going to offer, uh, is going to offer all these sacrifices again. It's going to be an ongoing day of atonement. And he also specifies that the priest who is going to do this is always the high priest. So Mm. like you said, priests kind of can do a bunch of different things. And I'd imagine if you're a priest, some of your days, like you said, are spent checking mold in houses and some of your days are spent doing sacrifices. Uh, Yom Kippur, those offerings and the scapegoat, that was Mm. only done by the high priest. So really, really cool moment there. And Mm -hmm. I, I just love... I love the pictures that we get of God's grace, even in the midst of like this long list of rules, uh, the day of atonement, even with all of kind of the, the craziness that's going on, it's a reminder that God is making a way for the forgiveness of sin yeah, for his people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, moving on into chapter 17, more instruction um, for how God's people are to worship him. God commands uh, people not to sacrifice um, on any other altars other than the altar right outside the tent of meeting um, that they created. And if anyone sacrifices um, any animals anywhere else, they're to be cut off from the people. I, I want to point out too, um, Hunter brought this up last week, which is a good thing to remember. The tent of meeting has changed meanings because before the tabernacle was tabernacle yes. was built, the tent of meeting was the special tent that Moses had where he would meet with God. Now that the tabernacle is built, the tent of meeting is within the tabernacle as well. So you might have a different thing in your mind there. But so when you say the altar in front of the temp- tent of meeting, that is still within the structure of the tabernacle. Yes, it's the same. It's the same. Um, uh, what am I looking at? Same altar that they're sacrificing all of the other right. uh, sacrifices at. Um, this is really important. Now it's alluded to heavily in this, although it doesn't say specifically, um, you know, you could ask the question of why, why aren't they allowed to um, make sacrifices to God anywhere else? And I think part of that is, again, God specifying that he's holy and the way that you worship him is supposed to be in a really specific way. Like the other things in this passage, it is also heavily alluding to the sacrifices that they're making while out in the fields are to other gods. And so God is once again, forbidding um, people to make sacrifices to any other gods. Um, but him, that's really important, obviously. Yeah. Um, next, uh, God commands Israel not to eat the blood because, and quote, the life of the animal is in the blood. And this is a really, um, really notable thing to understand, even though it sounds weird, like the life of the animal is in the blood because we, with our modern minds, again, um, we know that the, like the life, the soul of an animal or whatever is not in the blood. Um, but it's, this is absolutely foundational to understanding so many of these sacrifices, Um, that when you're placing your sin symbolically on the life of this animal and this animal is giving its life in place of yours, um, that you're essentially that, that life is in the blood. So when they're sprinkling that animal's life 
around the temple and around the different places on the altar. And sometimes we're about to read about, you know, it being placed on the earlobe from, from head to toe of the man. Um, it's important uh, to, to leave that essentially in order, if you were to eat that blood, it would be taking the life um, that is atoning for your sin and taking it back into yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's an important thing to know. Well, and I also I also don't think it's an accident that there's all this specific uh, word about blood, and then when we get to the New Testament, it's the the blood of Christ is, is mentioned a lot, and even yeah. during even during communion, right? Like, what does Jesus yeah. say? He says, "This is my blood, which is given." So it's almost like a. I, I think there's reading through the Bible this year. I feel like there's so many things where you kind of see Jesus fulfilling the sacrificial yeah. uncleanness things where it's like, yeah, he's not unclean on the third day. He's exalted. Um, you can't drink this blood except this time, because this is the, this is the last sacrifice. There's not going to be any more after this. It's, it's kind mm-hmm. of really cool to see how this is all being set up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on to Leviticus 18. Um, this is a, this is just a long chapter on all of the relatives that you should not sleep with. Um, in important a sexual stuff. Mandatory. Important <laughs> stuff. Um, and the answer to that is is it's all it's all of them. Don't don't have sex with any of your family members. And and even uh, not all blood relatives. Also, just like step and stepmothers, yeah. stepfathers. None of that. Yep. No animals. That's in there <laughs> too. Yeah. Well, and th- this seems really obvious to us, but um, it does point out in in uh, verse three, um, eighteen verse three. It says, "You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do." Uh, as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you to, do not follow their practices. So it seems really obvious to us, but he's saying like, hey, everywhere where you came from and everywhere where you're going, like everybody's doing this, which is crazy to us. Um, but again, God God is, is saying, don't do that. So it sounds obvious to us, but this is something that they would be very used to um, practicing. Um, so again, God is confronting the practices of the other nations around them um, and telling them to be different. Yeah. Um, so a couple of notes to take away from this. One is um, God takes sexual sin extremely seriously, um, sexual sin of all sorts. It doesn't matter whether it's a family member. Again, um, in the same passage, bestiality, sex with animals is put in this um, uh, same sex um, uh, is in the same passage. So all of this is lumped into all of these really extreme things are lumped into the same Uh, passage of sexual impurity. Um, And so it's just a reminder that God takes sexual immorality extremely seriously. And I think that's something for us to remember in our culture that we really don't, um, whether whether we're people in the church or out of the church, this isn't something that we take as seriously as God seems to take this. Um, It's a a holy union and anything um, outside of that um, is detestable to God. So there is one verse in there, um, verse 21, that it mentions uh, Moloch and child sacrifices kind of randomly in the middle. And Evan's about to get into this uh, a little bit deeper. Um, but again, uh, Moloch is, um, God is, God is uh, coming against the practices of these people and some of the most common practices um, in these people where sacrifice, child sacrifices to Moloch and these big um essentially orgies that people would right. um, would be doing in worship of Molech. So God is kind of coming against that. Um, a side note, uh, people kind of have a hard time um, moving into like Joshua and Judges uh, with the eliminate, elimination of the Canaanite 
nations. And, you know, we kind of asked the question of like, why did God have to eliminate, eliminate those people and, and take them out of this land? And um, this is telling us, uh, verse 24 tells us these practices, these sexual practices and these child sacrifices are why um, God is taking the Canaanites out of this land and replacing them. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about Moloch here in a second. But like when you know, when you read the details about what that actually all looked like, it is. Um, yeah. It's not it, good. Yeah. Okay, so chapter 19 is a, is a long series of laws. Uh, I'm not going to read them all, but some highlights. Uh, honor your parents, always mm-hmm. a good one. Keep the Sabbath, no idols. Uh, so those are kind of, they're already in the Ten Commandments, but God is repeating them here. Uh, there's these verses that make me think about Jesus. So this is verses 19 or chapter 19, verses eight, five through eight. It says, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may, so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day you offer it or on the day after or anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten on the third day at all on the third day, it is tainted and will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord and shall be cut off from his people. So that's kind of what I was talking about, how yeah. it's unclean on the third day. I, I just can't help but think about Jesus there. Uh some more laws. I love this one. Uh, and I'm not saying that ironically, uh, leave the edges of your field for the poor as well as Mm. don't glean what's left over. Uh, and so again, God Mm -hmm. constantly has in his heart, the poor. Yeah. Um, and so it's, you're going to harvest most of your field, but leave the edges so that people can come and harvest what they need. And then when it says glean, don't glean, what that means is as your harvesters are going, they're naturally going to drop some Mm -hmm. things. And so what most of the time you would do, because it's smart is you would send workers in behind them and you'd pick up all of the scraps yeah. that they left. Uh, in Israel, that's not what you're supposed to do. That's also to be left for the poor. Yeah. Um, and it reminds me of, of I, I, can't, I can't remember how this person is related to me. I think it's a great grandfather of mine or maybe a great, great uncle or something. Uh, but my grandma was telling me how during the Great Depression, uh, owned, she lived on a farm. And one of the things that he would do is he had a section of the farm that he cornered off and he wouldn't harvest it. And it was specifically mm-hmm. for the people in the town who needed food um, to eat. They could come and they could pick whatever they mm-hmm. needed. So it just kind of reminds me of that. It's a great way to uh, um, that God instituted to make sure that the poor are constantly being taken care of. Yeah. And it's also just a, a good thought that even though we're establishing Israel as a holy nation that's set apart, um, anybody who chooses to be a part of of the worship of Yahweh is completely welcome, whether they're poor right. or whether they're, they're a foreigner or, or anything else. No, absolutely. Yeah. We see that with Ruth. She, cause she's both yeah. of those things Yeah, <laughs> and she true. gets welcome and she gets welcomed in, uh, getting back to 10 commandment repeats. There's also no stealing or lying. Uh, and then this one, this, this verse just makes me wonder what kind of jerks were living in the camp at the time. So it's, you shall not curse a deaf person or put a stumbling <laughs> block before the blind, uh, but you shall feel the Lord, Dude. your God. I'm like, so people are just like tripping blind people. Just Dude. thinking it's hilarious. I don't know. So like, I'm glad there's a law against it. Like, good job. But what what bunch of jerks some of these Israelites are. Uh, It says, continuing on, no hating of your countrymen in your heart. Uh, This comes up later in the Sermon on the Mount, which is funny because I I didn't realize that that is a command in Leviticus. I didn't realize that either. You think of it as being, this is for the first time Jesus revealing, hey, and if you hate someone in your heart, that's also against the law. But no, it's in Leviticus. He's he's fulfilling the law. Man, oh man. Uh, No showing preference to either the poor or the rich. Uh, That comes up in James. Uh, which is funny because I think that's actually in in one way that's really countercultural because I think yeah. in in our culture we very much have the idea of we should not be showing preference to the rich, right. um, but there's also the of don't show preference to the poor and and the the example that's used is like in a court case, um, just because the person's poor doesn't mean well yeah just let them win and yeah. take them like no yeah. like justice sure. is to be done so really really interesting point there. Uh, 
Bummer for me and Nathan, no trimming the edges of your beard. Yeah, Luckily, we live under the new covenant, yes. so we can trim on the trim the edges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then th- you kind of alluded to this one as well, but treat foreigners living in Israel the same way as you would treat a native Israelite. Um, and so even if they're not Yahweh worshipers, if they're living in Israel, they are a, they should be treated the way that you would treat Israelites. Foreigners who want to become Yahweh worshipers, they become full Israelite, they become full Jews, like it's a really yeah. beautiful thing. Uh, and I love the reminder that God gives, because the whole reason for this is because you were once strangers mm-hmm. in the land of Egypt. So essentially, it's kind of a treat others the way that you would want to yeah, be treated. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a foreshadowing of, of that law. Well, in chapter 20, we get another series of laws, uh, starting with this very strict one. So this is what Nathan was alluding to. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who give any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people shall land, uh, land, the people of the land shall stone him with stones. So no stoning with, you know, sticks or anything, because then it wouldn't be called stoning. That'd be, be called sticking. sticking. Yeah. Yep. That's not, and that's Obviously. not what you do. Uh, I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech mm-hmm. to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And the people of the land do not close their eyes to that man who gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and I will cut them off from among the people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. Yeah. Uh, so this is like, it's, it's funny because like all sin is bad and all idolatry is bad. Um, but Molech worship is clearly on this other level yeah. that God just detests. And it's specifically because it's child sacrifices is what's happening. Um, I, I, I love the picture that's painted here. It's really grim, but it's basically a, there's a zero tolerance yeah. for child sacrifice going on in Israel. Even to people who it's saying, if you know someone did this and you didn't put them to death, you're exiled as well. Yeah. Well, it even says God, God doesn't just curse uh, the worship of Molech or um, the sacrifices that are made to Molech. It also, he also curses the ground that the the sacrifices are made on. So, yeah, that's a yeah. great point. Um, and this is what I was alluding to as well. I heard, I think it was Frank Turek who mm-hmm. was kind of describing. He talks a lot about Molech. Yeah. Well, Molech, well, cause I think they're, like you said, one of the big objections and I get it. Yeah. Um, one of the big objections to the, the old Testament in particular is like, well, God just kind of tells the Israelites to like drive them out. And if they stay, you're going to kill every last one of them. Yeah. Like that's really brutal. Um, and well, I'll, I'll get to this point a little in a little bit as well, because God's making it clear that this is the reason I'm doing it because yeah. they're engaged in this kind of sin. Um, and so Turk was talking about what Molech worship was. And when you read accounts of it, it's talking about how you would, um, you would take babies and you would put them on mm-hmm. this bronze basin and you would, you would burn them alive in mm-hmm. front of everyone and they would pound drums super loud so that you couldn't hear the screams of the children that was happening as it was going on. Yeah. And as someone who has a baby at home, that's like, that's insane to me. Yeah. And so when you, when you realize that um, it's a culture that is practicing this and thinks it's totally great, yeah. um, all of a sudden your, your opinions might shift a little bit about whether or not that culture deserves to continue on or whether, you know, maybe God made the right choice yeah. here and, uh, and shutting it down. So and also, he's not showing favoritism. He says, if you guys start doing these practices, I'm going to do the same thing to you as I did to them. Yeah. Well, and yeah. you'll notice when does it shift? Because God, God is so long-suffering yeah. throughout all of the Old Testament. <laughs> when does it shift to where yeah. God says, okay, I'm done. There's no more There's yes. no more grace. There's no way out. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's when Manasseh becomes king and yeah. he, and he uh, worships Molech. Yep. That's the... 
that's the last straw in God's mind. So he clearly detests this, um, which I think is is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, that's not all that's in chapter 20, though. Uh, there's also some laws against turning to spiritual mediums, which uh, famously one of Israel's kings is going to break at some point. Uh, those who curse their parents are to be put to death is another law that happens there. Uh, there is then a long list of laws concerning sexual sin, which is kind of a repeat of a lot of what Nathan talked about, mm-hmm. um, but it's it contains rebukes against adultery, homosexuality, incest, and bestiality. So again, kind mm-hmm. of that same that same idea. And then this ending section gives us, I think it gives us a window into the motives of Yahweh's plan to destroy the Canaanites. And and I kind of alluded to this already, but this is the last verses that we'll read today in the Old Testament, at least. It says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. Which this is important because what eventually happens, the land vomits them out. Obviously, God's the one doing it, but that is what happens. Uh, And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things. Therefore, I detested them. But I have said to you, you you shall inherit the land and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from these peoples. And so, yeah, it, it puts into perspective, mm-hmm. why is God listing off all of these things? He, he just said it. It's because they're, yeah. they're doing them all. Like all these things I'm saying to you, do not do them. That's what the Canaanites are doing. And I'm driving them out of the land before you. So that's where we end. Yeah. A little chipper. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little dark. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where we're ending next week. I haven't gotten there yet, but it, I, I, you know, sometimes this part of the Bible can be a little bit dark sometimes. Yeah, I know. And, and you, well, actually, never mind. Never mind. Never mind. All right. Sorry. All right. Well, that's cool. We'll leave it for later. Right. Oh, oh, teaser. All right. Well, before we jump into the New Testament today, we do want to remind you to leave us a five-star review if you uh, are able to on whatever app you're listening on, particularly Spotify and Apple Podcast. And if you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts, I think is the only one that lets you do it. We will read it on the air and give you a shout out just because, you know, we like it when you leave five-star reviews and we like to give our listeners shout outs. So there you go. All right. Well, let's jump into the New Testament. All right. Well, last week we left off with Felix treating Paul pretty well. Remember, Felix is the governor of Judea. Uh, he, I mean, he treats him well, but he also doesn't do anything. And yeah, so, Felix is an okay guy. Yeah, he's just an okay guy. Great pitcher for the Mariners, but a you know an okay governor of Judea. Uh, after two years, he is replaced as governor by Festus, which is, yeah, that's a fun name to say. Uh, and the whole thing starts over. So Paul stands mm-hmm. trial once again before Festus, who wants to do the Jews a favor. And he asks if Paul wants to be tried in Jerusalem because he's like, okay, I don't care about this guy. Like, hey, Sanhedrin, you guys want to try him? And Paul's like, nope, I've already, I've already, we've already been through this. I'm asking for Caesar. Uh, and so Festus, who apparently does not like dragging his feet, unlike a certain other governor of Judea, simply replies, to Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar, you will go. Which is great. I love it. Way to, way to be a man of action, Seriously. Festus. Also sounds cool. I don't know why. It's, it, 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 it does. That's why I put it in there. <laughs> so I could have just like paraphrased. It was like, no, it's a great line. All right. Well, after, before, or sorry, before Paul is shipped off, uh, Herod Agrippa meets with Ferris. Herod is the uh, the Jewish king of Judea. Um, he's like the sub king. And I believe that, I believe is the governor under his authority or over his authority? I shouldn't ask because I, I, I don't know in my head, but they're, they're pretty close to peers either way. Uh, so Herod Agrippa meets with Festus and he's curious about what Paul has to say. 
Uh, Festus explains the whole controversy was over religious disagreements with the Jews, and therefore he couldn't find a reason to put him to death. Um, Agrippa, who probably doesn't care much about that stuff also, uh, still wants to speak with Paul directly. Uh, and Festus thinks it's a good, I, I love, I never caught this before that this is the justification. Uh, Festus thinks it's a good idea since he can't come up with any charges. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's like, yeah. oh yeah, sounds great. Maybe he'll say something bad. And Pass I- Pass him up the line. Exactly. Uh, he's like, because right now I'm just sending him to Caesar and I can't think of a single thing that he's done to break Which- the law would be scary uh yeah i mean that's a fair point as well yeah i mean caesar doesn't especially because it's uh is it nero at this point i think it is nero uh not a guy you want to be on the bad yeah, side of a little no. crazy so you don't want to give work to the emperor of rome for no reason <laughs> that's that's a great point uh yeah so festus thinks to himself hey all right let's put him on trial again maybe something's going to come up in in yet another trial yeah, uh, moving on to Acts 26 again. Yeah, Paul is getting continuing uh, to be passed around the legal system. And side note, Paul is getting passed around this legal system for years, which is crazy to think about. Um, but that not only gives him the opportunity to preach to the people and to their leaders, just as Jesus told him he would uh, during his conversion, but it also gave him the opportunity to write a lot of the the letters that we're studying right. today, um, which is pretty cool. Well, I, I, yeah, I can't help but think about in the moment, Paul, maybe he doesn't understand. Like, I wonder why yeah. God wants me in prison. Um, but okay, like he submits to it. And and little does he know that, I, I, I guess I'm reading into God's motives here. So I, this is a very sure. open hand statement. I don't know. Uh, but I can't help but imagine that a big part of God's motivation for doing that is I'm going to force Paul to write letters uh, <laughs> so that we have half the New Testament. And, and, and I guess it's not half because not all the letters are written from prison, but a lot of them are. And there's some of the most beautiful books of the Bible. Absolutely. And yeah, it makes sense. Speaking of men of action, Paul is a man of action from the moment we meet him uh, for better or for worse. And so, yeah, maybe it took a little bit of God just saying like, hey, you need to slow down because you have a lot to write about that would eventually become scripture um, to us. But anyways, Paul's getting passed around. He eventually works his way up. Yes. To King uh, Agrippa, um, who's the second to last Herodian King of Israel, which is crazy. His son is going to be the last one. Um, uh, something happened. Some, something, something, <laughs> something, something go down crazy in, happens in the year 70. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the, I like that the, this chapter takes the time to poke a little bit of fun at Agrippa and calling him pompous. Um, and, and, but Paul uses his kind of, uh, Agrippa's pride to, um, to his own, own advantage and he uses it to appeal to his pomp in order to speak the gospel as his defense um, before him, which is pretty cool. Paul's a smart guy. Um, And so Paul starts to speak the gospel just by using his own story of how he met Jesus. um, And then he appeals to the reason for his belief. And I think for a lot of us, when we're thinking about um, sharing our faith with people, that's a really good model um, for us to use because God uses our stories in a really powerful way, but then also our understanding of why we've come to the conclusions that we have. yeah, but let's uh, let's read about Paul's conversion. We again, we've already read about this in Acts um, chapter nine, I believe. Um, but this is a this is just Paul giving this take to King Agrippa, um, verses thirteen through eighteen. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. When uh, we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, "Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me?" It is hard for you to kick against the goads. There's a good line for you. It's true. Um, Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand to your feet. 
I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God uh, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Um, I love that first part that Christ says, you're persecuting me. He doesn't say you're persecuting the church. You're saying persecuting Christians, um, but he's saying you're persecuting me. And again, it's this beautiful picture of Christ's love for the church and the unity um, between those two. I absolutely love that. Um, I, I also love that this seems like a really brief conversation to me for for like one of the the biggest turning points in one of the biggest uh, impacts to our faith. Um, Christ just kind of shows up, which is a huge mercy and says, uh, Hey, I'm real. Knock it off. Now get up. I have a job for you. And then Paul just gets up and goes to Damascus preaching Jesus instead of persecuting him. Well, I think it's, it shows, like you said, Paul's a man of action. And I think yeah. he, I, I think he has good motives is maybe the wrong way to say this, but I think he's, he's persecuting Christians because he earnestly believes that it's blasphemy yeah, against absolutely. God. And so the second it's demonstrated, nope, it's not. Paul's like, oh, oh, okay. Well, I better, I better go tell people about yeah, this then. Seriously, and you also see just like the continued mercy of Jesus. Um, by and, and again, like I don't know if this conversation was actually longer between him and Christ, but it is just really simple. It's just like, hey, you're you're persecuting me. Stop. I have a job for you. Go. And then Paul is blessed from there on out. Yep. Um, also, in fairness, if I heard an audible voice coming from the sky and then I was made blind, that would also convince me it, that whatever it would wake you up. Whatever quick. was happening there was yeah. probably true. I always wonder what it would be like to be a person in Damascus waiting for Paul to come and start like persecuting the Christians and be like, "What? Wait, what? What this, is going on here?" And then find out like years later, you're like, "Oh yeah, that missionary Paul." Like, no way. That that. Paul, no way. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, don't say. It's crazy. Um, yeah, so he tells King Agrippa his story, and then he goes on to explain um, to him as a Jew, because again, King, uh, king Agrippa was a Jewish um, king. He explained to him um, by appealing to his Judaism why Jesus being the, the Messiah is what the law and the prophets predicted. Um, so again, he tells his own personal story of how he met Jesus and then appeals to the logic of it, which is which is really great. And he was really good at it. They, again, find no reason to kill him and they send him off. Um, one last note uh, for this chapter, and that's verse eight. Um, Paul says to them as Jews, uh, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And Evan, you and I have talked about this uh, a little bit in the past, but once you come to certain conclusions about God, um, all of the other crazy things that he does, like it's, it's easier to accept that, right. you know, it's like once you accept that there's a God of the universe, that it's all powerful and he can do all of these things, which these people that he's talking to have come to those conclusions. He's just saying, why would he not be able to do these things? Why is this hard for you to believe? I remember there was, yeah, there was a debate about, and I, I won't say who was in it because, you know, you know I, I had a problem with the Christian side of the debate, uh, mm. but like it was about basically God and science and the, the the debate turned into like a debate over Noah's Ark. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, how would it even work? And how would you get all this stuff and stuff? And they're like, dude, like, what? like, and like 19 year old me was just so angry because I was like, I was like screaming at my computer. Um, but it's like, if you accept the first premise of the Bible, that which is in the beginning, God, right? If you accept that there is an all powerful creator of the universe, that answers every other question yeah, about like, like, how did God 
uh, how did God do this miracle? Well, he's the all powerful creator of the universe. I don't know, but like, I don't, I don't think it's beyond his ability to do so. Like, how did God make all the animals fit on Noah's Ark? It was certainly a miracle, but if, if he exists, then why yeah. can't he do it? It's yeah, it's an interesting point. And when thinking of Christianity, I think that's a really helpful mindset to come across in is if, if we believe that God exists, um, then miracles can happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that they, they do happen, but it means they can happen. Right. And if miracles can happen, what is the most likely explanation for all of the things surrounding Jesus' historical death and then the claims of his resurrection? And the, the most logical conclusion is there was a resurrection. There was a miracle that took place. You quoting C.S. Lewis there? Uh, no. That sounds, uh, maybe. That sounds vaguely... Uh, that sounds like something I read in Lewis one time. Okay, so I have maybe. a confession to you, uh, to make to you. Evan. Oh no! I, Don't say it. I have not read. Don't say it. Your Christianity, and everybody is telling me that I need to. And I feel especially bad for saying this because you gave me the book to read. It's in my office. I am actually planning on doing it in the next couple of weeks, That's but I haven't good. read it. Mere, Mere Christianity is, uh, it's one of the few books that legitimately changed my life. So yeah. I, I recommend it to everyone. Uh, but this isn't, this isn't a C.S. Lewis podcast. Mm. Um, for that, go to Pints with Jack, who aren't uh, <laughs> not a sponsor and don't know we exist, but they're a really good C.S. Lewis podcast. Uh, so chapter 27 of Acts picks up with Paul and at least Luke, uh, we know this because he says we, uh, heading towards Italy. And when I say we, I don't mean like he's on a roller coaster. I mean the perspective shifts and it's not third person, it's first person now. Uh, they hop on a ship that is bound for Italy. Uh, the weather is pretty terrible, but through great effort, they make their way to uh, Crete, uh, the island of Crete, specifically mm -hmm. to a port called Fair Havens in the south of the island. Uh, and here's what really annoys me. Instead of staying in what sounds, staying in what sounds like a perfectly pleasant place, like Oh, we're in Fair Havens. Like I would stay at a place <laughs> called Fair Havens for winter. That sounds awesome. Uh, they push their luck and they do so against the advice of Paul. Paul is like, hey guys, like if you do this, it's going to be really bad. And like, ah, no. And it's annoying. They're not even trying to get to like another island. They're just trying to get to like the Western part of Crete because like, oh yeah, after winter, this will be a way easier spot to jump off of. So I, yeah, I don't and I, what do I know about sailing, right? I, maybe yeah. this is a really smart thing that they're doing, but I, as I read it, I'm just like, dude, just hang out and take yeah. like take the L, but whatever. Uh, they, so they try to make their way to, to Phoenix, which is in the west of Crete, but they are blown insanely far off course. Um, and this is where I'll say, if you have a Bible that has maps in the back, mm. this is for sure on the maps. Look how far off course they are blown. Look where Phoenix is uh, and look where Malta, spoiler alert, that's where they're going to end up. Look where Malta is. Um, it's it's insane. Yeah. They're, they're, you can tell that they're just fighting to keep the ship afloat with how far off they're going. Uh, and so the whole way they're worried about losing the ship. And so the men are so scared they aren't eating there. And, mm -hmm. and it makes sense. The crew is staying up basically day and night, trying to keep everything going. Uh, and Paul encourages the men by saying that while there will be losses of cargo, there are not going to be any losses of life. Basically, none, no one here is going to die. I love the verse in this chapter that it says that they actually passed ropes around the ship and tied it. Oh, yeah. Like literally trying to keep the ship from falling apart. It's it's terrifying. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, they were there for 14 days. And, on the, and when I say there, I mean they're in the middle of the ocean trying mm -hmm. to fight this storm for 14 days. On the final day, Paul makes everyone eat up and basically is like, hey, I, 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 this is my paraphrase, but like, hey, you guys got a big day ahead of you. It's time to get some carbs going. Or you're going <laughs> to need all the energy you can get. Uh, and he tells them that they're going to be safe soon. He breaks bread, 
Yeah, he breaks the bread, prays, and then this happens. So this is uh, the last verses of chapter 27. It says, and they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. And when it says they made for the beach, that means like they're, they're trying to beach the ship. They're trying to make crash into mm-hmm. the island. Uh, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel to ground. The bow stuck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill all the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. Mm -hmm. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and make for the land and the rest on planks of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. Um, And so you see God is protecting Paul in this moment because it it makes sense. I understand, Mm -hmm. right? You're... you're, you're transporting prisoners. I totally get that the, uh, not that I think it's right, but I understand the idea of the law being, um, yeah. you got to kill the prisoners so they don't escape. But yep. luckily the centurion, not luckily by divine providence, yes. the centurion uh, wants to save Paul. And then eventually they all make their way uh, towards land where cool things happen, but they end up happening in Nathan's chapters this week, not my chapters. What are you going to do? Yeah, I know. Acts uh, 28, it's the last chapter in Acts. Um yeah, basically it picks right back up. They're shipwrecked on this island. Um, a couple of cool things happen. Paul gets bitten by a venomous snake and doesn't die. So people think he's a god. That's kind of crazy. Um, not something that happens every day. Uh, th- Although <laughs> it's funny. It reminds me of that meme where uh, it's Paul saying like, if I had a nickel for every time I got called a god, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it is weird that it happened twice. Yeah, <laughs> so there, yeah it really it's, is. It's a thing. Um, yeah. Uh, Paul performs miracles and heals a lot of the people on this island. And I don't know why this hasn't stuck in my brain because I've obviously read this before. Um, I don't remember Paul performing miracles. Oh, really? I, I really don't. And I know that he was sent by Christ as an apostle, given um, given the same authority as as anyone else. Um, I just don't remember it happen, happening. So um, that's pretty cool to just see Paul in that context. I usually think of, when I think of the Apostle Paul, I think of kind of the the, the painting of the old kind of bald right. guy in prison, like with the, with the feather writing it down, you know. Um, but cool to see him like being hands-on, caring for the people that later in Romans, he so clearly loves them. And well, yeah, we'll get there. Um, He then uh, uh, starts, um, sorry, let me find my. By quoting Isaiah, you say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, He then starts preaching to them by quoting Isaiah. And uh, you you and I have talked about this quite a bit. Um, There's a lot of chapters or a lot of chapters of Isaiah that modern day Jews don't commonly study and don't commonly know because the early church used these as such strong evidences for Christ being the Messiah. Really? We have we haven't talked about this, so I'm curious who you 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 and I haven't. Uh, I wonder if it was maybe it was Hunter or someone. Oh, maybe it was. Well, I mean, um, I'm gonna have to pick their brain after this. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. I mean, Isaiah chapter um, 53 is a really really popular passage um, about the suffering servant that that um, so aptly describes um, who Jesus is and and what he does. Um, and if you haven't read that recently, go back and read Isaiah 53 through the eyes of a of a post-crucifixion um, believer. And it's unbelievable how descriptive um, this was. But if you talk, there's a ministry called, um, I think it's just called For Israel or something like that. They're For getting, Israel. I found Messiah is another one that kind of does something similar. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I guess I'm thinking about what you're about to say. Yeah, they basically go around the streets and say like, hey, have you read Isaiah chapter 53? And and all of these practicing Jews are, are like, no, like they don't commonly do this. Um, and, and so, uh, 
yeah, it's just interesting to see from the very beginning, Paul was preaching out of Isaiah because it's such a great description of Christ um, to the point where they became known as like um, such strong leverage for the Christian um, heresy in their eyes that they stopped commonly preaching them in the synagogues. Interesting. Um, which is, which is pretty cool. And not a lot of them know this, but that's Isaiah chapter 53. Um, but here Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter six, and this is Isaiah's commission from God. Um, it's uh, 28, 26 through 29. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with the ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Paul then says, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Um, So in this quote, in this, in this first preaching of the gospel to this people on this island, Paul, it was really not pulling um, any punches whatsoever. He's basically saying, you know, you've, um, you've closed your heart to to the to the the message of god from the beginning and because of that the gentiles are coming in um to this but regardless of of how heavy-handed paul is uh, many accept his teaching and the end of the book um comes to paul is under house arrest and he is able to preach the gospel to the romans without hindrance and it's kind of a happy ending yeah and we i think we talked about this when we introduced the book but this is um of all the books in the bible this one is pretty much the easiest to date because it doesn't mention half of what happens to Paul afterwards, specifically his death, right? Yeah. Uh, and so if Luke is writing an accounting of Paul, he's he's going to include his, his death that happens. So it gives yes. us a really hard date of basically, yep. yeah, probably in the mid, like, I, well, I say hard date, but relatively to like how you can date other books. Knowing that it's within like a two or three year period between like 80, 64 and 67 is is right spot on. And which means the gospel of Luke is earlier. So yeah, it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger that we don't get resolved within scripture. We have it in church tradition. Yeah. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, but it's also, it's not often where you can kind of take a sigh of relief at the end of of the book of the Bible. You're kind of like, ah, he's able to preach the gospel unhindered. That's what we've been trying to do for a long time. Paul gets a happy ending. Yeah. Until you look into what happens. Yeah. In this book. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I, I guess I don't want to make like Martyrdom. It's a, I guess it's not a happy ending, but it's a joyful ending. Yes, the way I would absolutely. It. All right. Well, now we kick off our first epistle of the year. Uh, that's just a fancy word that means letter, but we have to be, you know, we can't just say the word letter. We have to be fancy with it when we talk about the Bible. Uh, this is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, and it's among the most dense books in the Bible, but in a good way. So don't, don't hear me saying that it's boring or anything like that. Um, there's just I mean, I've heard of churches doing a series through Romans that takes like two years. And I, and I, mm. and I, and I hear that and I'm like, yep, I, I get it. Like pretty mm-hmm. much every, you could do a, a whole hour long message on almost every verse. There's a lot of truth that's packed in there. Um, it's been described as Paul's systematic theology. Nice. And what that means is it's a class that you take in Bible school. Uh, but systematic theology is what does the whole Bible say about X topic. So it's kind of bringing in truth mm. from all of these different books uh, and saying, just kind of trying to give it like one coherent picture. That's kind of what Paul is doing in Romans. He's taking truth from a lot of different things and he's wanting to describe, here's exactly what we believe. Here's exactly what the gospel is. Uh, and it makes sense because at the time of the writing of this book, Paul has not yet been to Rome as we just had spoiled for us in the last chapter. Uh, he, he gets to Rome eventually. Uh, but by that point, he is not, or by that point, he had already written the letter to 
yeah. the Romans. Uh, and so it makes sense that Paul is wanting to, to explain the gospel as clearly as possible. Um, also to defend against heresies, right? Because he's not there. He can't see how the church is going. And so he mm-hmm. wants to be very clear with this is exactly what we believe. Don't believe the other stuff if someone's yeah. coming in and preaching another gospel. Uh, so Paul begins his letter by putting a couple things in their proper place. First, he declares that he is a servant of Christ. Uh, He may be an apostle, but this is in full humble servant to Jesus. So Paul is kind of putting himself in the proper place. Second, Paul extols the glory and the beauty of the gospel that he is sharing. Uh, And so there's a bunch of really famous verses in this. He's just talking about how amazing the the verses are. And the most famous of which is, I would say, Romans 116, which is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But then he, interestingly, he connects it to the book of Habakkuk in the next verse. This is Romans 117. He says, for in for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed mm. from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And when you go through Habakkuk, if you remember from, from last year, we talked about it. Habakkuk is this really interesting kind of Job-ish book, just in miniature. Um, but Habakkuk cries out and he's like, God, the, Judah is so sinful. Like, what are you, when are you going to do something about this? And God's like, oh, I am doing something. The Babylonians are coming and they're going to kill everyone. And Habakkuk's like, well, okay, hold on. Wait, that's, not, that's not what I was <laughs> looking up. for. Uh, but it, it says this, this is what Paul's quoting. This is Habakkuk mm-hmm. chapter two. Uh, and the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up and not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Mm -hmm. So it's God kind of carving this way out from the coming destruction of Babylon. Um, What does that sound like? It's God carving a way out. God, Jesus carves a way out from us, from the coming destruction of sin and death. Um, If sin and death are the greater Babylon, then the gospel is the even greater portion of of this prophecy from Habakkuk. Mm Because this prophecy was supposed to warn the Jews so they could get away. Um, The gospel warns us so that we can escape the death of sin and hell as well. So I I love that Paul does all these Old Testament connecting points in these. Uh, After this, Paul shifts to what happens to those who do not live by faith Mm -hmm. or those who do not believe. Uh, And he goes through basically a really long history lesson about how God has given unbelievers over to their sin Mm -hmm. uh, and he allows them to destroy themselves. Um, and so I couldn't help but, and I, I love, this is what, another thing I love about the Bible reading plan is sometimes you just read things in a couple, a couple days apart and you see how they connect. Yeah. Um, so this idea here, it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boasters, uh, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Man, that's a long list. Yeah, And it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only get, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Uh, and I can't help think about what we just read in Leviticus about yeah. how that's God's point is that he's let the Canaanites do what they want to do. And they've chosen to live just abhorrently evil lives. And now punishment's coming. 
uh, Paul is saying that's what we've done. We're like the Canaanites. Yeah. Uh, we we and it's worse too because we've we know the truth. And and I think the Canaanites knew what they were doing was wrong. Um, but he's talking about how we've had the gospel exposed, not the gospel. I guess he's talking about we've had the law of God um, exposed to us, and yet still we choose to live in these these wicked, evil ways, and yet. In the midst of this, God is making a way out of that. So, and I guess we'll continue on into chapter two, but it's a really cool, really cool point that Paul is making here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, moving on to Romans chapter two. I love that you mentioned um, it's like uh, Paul's systematic theology. The whole way through the book of Romans, Paul is kind of building an argument. And that's why it can seem kind of like, as we move on, it can seem kind of rambly at certain times. And mm-hmm. he's he's famous for not liking commas, in, at least in the translation. <laughs> like it can just be hard to to track with. But um, I remember when I was in high school and I was studying the book of Romans for the first time, um, I kind of put headers on each chapter um, to, to make it work. And just like what you were coming out of, chapter one is kind of how uh, the world is under condemnation for their deeds. Um, what you just talked about. And I think I, I just wrote like, okay, chapter one, the Gentiles suck. Cool. We get it. Um, chapter two, he's talking about how Jews are under the same condemnation now because of their deeds and even more so because they had, um, they have the word of God there right. to guide them. And so they're, they're under more condemnation because they had the law to guide them and they're still not obeying it. So I kind of wrote like chapter one, Gentiles suck. Chapter two, Jews suck. Chapter three is kind of like everybody as a whole kind of sucks. And we We've needed grace since Abraham. And I don't know if that's somewhat um, uh, irreverent. I'm not meaning to be, but it's just a helpful way to organize it in my mind. So um, moving on into chapter two, we're talking about how Jews are under condemnation because of the law. Um, And I just wanted to point out uh, chapter two, verses three three through five. Um, Paul says, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, them being the Gentiles, and yet you do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And um, I'm kind of on this kick uh, this year going through the Bible on um, on repentance, because I think it's something that uh, that word for us is kind of uncomfortable and it's easy for us to get the message of grace confused um, in repentance. Um, so I think the church has kind of strayed away from teaching uh, from teaching repentance, but it seems to me like the entire way through the gospels. I think I started this by being like, okay, Jesus was traveling around teaching people different things. What was he teaching? And he was teaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think the last time I was on the podcast, we we talked about that. Did. And here Paul is now um, making an argument for the gospel being both for the Jews and for the Greeks, the Gentiles, the world. Um, and he's saying the same thing. Like it, whether you knew the the riches of God's mercy through the law and through the prophets or not, um, the, the call is the same. It's repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But he said, because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself. Um, again, because the, the Jews particularly had God's word, um, to guide them. And, um, I think, uh, this shows us why we that are under God's grace must still repent of our sins. Um, it's not only because it's God's will for our lives and he designed us to live in a certain way, um, but verse 24 points out um, 
as it is written, Paul says, God's name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And um, I know you and I have talked about this, uh, this particular topic quite a bit. We Trying not to place uh, words in the Bible that were meant for the Jews um, into our present day context, like that can that can be kind of a dangerous thing yeah. to do. There are all sorts of Old Testament prophecies and promises that are um, taken out of context because they were given to the Jews and we're just like, oh, that's us now. And that's not the the way it always is. But I think in Romans 2, um, there, there's a lot that we need to pay attention to as a warning for how we should live and why. And that word, God's name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, I think is really, really revel- relevant to the church today um, because the church has been seen for a long time as as people who are um, hypocritical who are judging other people and not living um, living the life that we are called to ourselves. Um, the name of God is being blasphemed. So it's really important for us to live a life, uh, as Paul says later, worthy of the calling which we've been called, um, because not only is it what God calls us to do, but it's also glorifying his name uh, to live that life. No, it's it's interesting because Paul focuses so much on his in his other letters as well. Um, he'll tell people like, "Stop doing this! Stop doing this!" Yeah. And the big reason he cites is because you're embarrassing the church. Totally, um, that's my paraphrase. But yeah, it's this idea of, um, and it's a really it's a really convicting thought of realizing that for a lot of people, their main exposure to who Jesus is is the way you act yeah. and the way you treat Absolutely. them. Uh, and so it is a heavy it's a heavy thing to to live with is, is this idea that we need to make sure that we represent Christ. Well, um, the Bible project just, they actually did a really good podcast episode recently on, um, they started on the sermon on the Mount, but they were talking mm-hmm. about the word repentance and how it's like, it's kind of weird because it has all this Christianese kind yeah. of, uh, baggage with it. Yep. Um, but it literally just means turn around yeah. or, and it's almost in other words, um, I forgot what you said it. Oh, with Paul, it reminds me of when you said it, uh, just like, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> stop. Like, stop, stop it. Do, do other things. Stop, like turn around go towards righteousness, stop going towards sin is, is kind of the idea there. Um, and I love that, like you said, it's, it's the picture of God has grace, but that doesn't mean that we just take God's grace and continue living in sin. Or or as Paul would say, by no means. By we? no means. Because that's, that's something that comes up a lot. Yeah. Uh, moving into chapter three, uh, Paul continues with the thought that if the law does not save, or sorry, continuing with the thought that the law does not save by showing that all of the world is fallen and sinful. Um, interestingly, Paul quotes from the Psalms and not just the prophets. Because mm-hmm. when I think of the passages in the Old Testament that are condemning for sin, I think of yes. the, uh, uh, the prophets. So the passages are the psalmist and the prophets complaining about the sinfulness of Israel and the surrounding nations. And so Paul's right. connecting David saying like, I'm looking out and I'm seeing all of this sin in the world. And he's like, yeah, that's, you know, that's been happening for forever. Hmm. Uh, and then Paul then makes the case that the law exists in order to show us sin, not to save us from sin. So this is Romans three, starting in verse 19. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to Mm -hmm. God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. So that's kind of that idea right there, yep. right? Is the the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what it's for. Yep. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Um, And so the way I've heard it, and I think this is actually a really helpful way of saying it, is that the law is the diagnosis and the and Christ is the prognosis. Yeah. Um, or in other words, those because those are medical terms, right? The diagnosis is telling you here's what's wrong. The prognosis is telling you here's how to fix it. Um, so the law, what Paul's arguing here is that the whole purpose of the law, I shouldn't say the whole purpose, but the the, the main purpose in terms of the story of salvation of the law was to show us how broken and sinful yeah. we are, so that when Christ comes, we understand that we need him. And yeah. So I, I think it's a, and, and also you just work in Romans 3, 23. Cause that's like the, I feel like yeah. it's one of like the more famous ones for all of sin and fall the short of the glory for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we never quote 24 because it says, yeah. and are justified by his grace as a gift. Yeah. So for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all will be justified by his grace as a gift or all who are justified, I yeah. guess it's the proper way to read that are justified by his grace as a gift. They're not justified through the law. Yeah. A really great chapter and a really great example of that kind of long-winded, feels a little bit rambly. Yep. It can be, it's so rich and full of such a, I mean, he had such a gift for working through the gospel in a way that makes sense, but man, you got to sit down and chew on it for Absolutely. a second. It's one, this is my paraphrase, but I, I love that passage. I can't remember if it's first Peter or second Peter, but where he's like, I hear you've been reading letters of Paul. Well, good luck with that. He's pretty hard to understand. <laughs> so even even yeah. if you think Paul's sometimes a little bit hard to read, uh, you have good company in Peter, yes. who also thinks the same thing. Uh, well, so yeah, we wrap up our New Testament readings this week with Paul reminding us that we have no right to boast in our salvation since we did not earn it through obedience to the law. However, does that not that does not mean we throw the law out? God is the God of the Jews and of the Gentiles, but we'll talk more about that next week. Mm. For now, let's talk about uh, Psalms and Proverbs passages with a special guest. All right. Well, listener, full disclosure, last week after we stopped recording, I just looked at Hunter and I was like, do you want want to come back? Because you talked about how excited you were about Psalm 22. Uh, so Hunter's back. And he's I gonna, said yes. Yeah, he's going to do the Psalms and Proverbs uh, section this week just because I could, how can you say no to that face? How can you say no to the someone who's so excited to talk about one specific I'm, psalm? I'm sure many people haven't seen my face, so they they wouldn't know. I guess, yeah. But... Well, if you want to see Hunter's face, it's a lot easier than some of the other co-hosts. Just go to any uh, live stream of our gatherings and he's the worship pastor. And so the, there the you guy go. Is singing for 20 minutes every Sunday. There um, you go. All right. Where are we starting? Psalm 21, Psalm 21. Uh, this is a Psalm of David. Good, good call. Good speaking, call. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of his own relationship with the Lord, he refers to himself as king in this Psalm. Uh, like I said, I, I believe it would be last week for everybody. Um, but it, when we're approaching the Psalms, we want to think of this word salvation. He uses that a lot in this specific Psalm. Um, as deliverance from enemies and deliverance from trouble, not so much in an eternal sense, which is the way we'll use that word when we get to the New Testament, right? But much more in um, a sense of, of temporal, like real life trouble, yeah. <laughs> you know, not this uh, saving it, it eternally from the consequence of our sin. Yeah, like when when David is saved from the armies of Saul, that is the salvation of the Lord, and mm-hmm. that's the way that that would be used back then as well. So we, it, it, yeah, the word salvation carries a lot of 
Christian baggage is the wrong word because it's a beautiful, mm-hmm. it's beautiful that we now think of this as being mostly a spiritual thing, but yeah, it's a good reminder uh-huh. that that's not always what the word was meant to solely encompass. Yeah. And even in a new Testament context, uh, I'm discovering more and more, there are words that we use like salvation and justification that get used in multiple different ways when we get to the new Testament. Um, not just to mean the moment where you've got the the ticket punched to heaven, or we say the moment you're born again, but they can sometimes mean uh, the same way we use the the word sanctification. Salvation gets used that way. It's right, this, yeah. this continual saving and then this eventual, I will be saved. Um, so I, I think in total, really in, in scripture, we use that word salvation four different ways, not to be confusing, but just, just pay attention to where you are and the tense that gets used. Is it a past tense? Is it a present tense or future tense? Tense. <laughs> tense. Uh, and you can understand that word salvation. Just a quick note on Psalm 21. Now we get to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is the reason I asked to come back on. There you go. It happens to be one of my favorite Psalms. I think the last time I was on, we did Psalm eight and I said, that was my favorite Psalm, but that's probably a lie. I, how are the people supposed to trust you? Hunter? That's the <laughs> I real don't question. Know. No, lie. I just keep getting the good ones. Uh, Psalm 22. We're not even going to start in Psalm 22. We're actually going to go to Mark 15, which is not a place we have been yet this year. Spoilers. It's a bit of a spoiler alert, but I'm going to read Mark 15, starting in verse 32. This is Jesus on the cross, right? He's being crucified in the process of being crucified. And there's a a unique detail in Mark's account of the crucifixion, which will come into play here when we get to Psalm 22. But starting in verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Keep that phrase in mind. We're going to go to Psalm 22. What are the first words of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whoa, whoa. It's the same thing. Here, I'm going to fix my mic real quick. All right, your mic's all fixed now. Yeah, there Way we to go. go. Um, see, sorry. We're in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people have taken Jesus's words to be like, oh, Jesus is confused. Like he doesn't know what's going on as he's on the cross. Mm -hmm. Typically people who are skeptical of the narrative of scripture as being um, true. Don't talk about Bart Ehrman. I am literally talking about Bart Ehrman. I I figured. (laughs) Um, Yes. But what Jesus is doing is he's pointing back at a Psalm of David and saying, hey, this is prophecy. And it's prophesying about me. As we as we approach this psalm, we'll we'll uh, I'll read some selections that are specific details that correspond with the same passage in Mark, where we get um, prophetic details that point to Jesus. I would say not all of the psalm as a whole necessarily has prophetic details everywhere. It's not like every line is directly right. pointing to Jesus. I would say the psalm 
we can think of it, it we use this term um uh, the now and the not yet when we're thinking about song or a, a prophecy in right. the Bible, there's like an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, which in this case um, isn't necessarily prophetic. It's just David is talking about himself and salvation from the terrible things that are going on in his life and how he feels. And we believe the spirit has inspired his words. So as he's saying these things, he's actually prophesying about Christ. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is pointing that out in Mark. Um, so firstly, we have that first connection. Jesus is literally quoting Psalm 22. We're going to skip down to Psalm 22, verse six, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. And if we actually go back in Mark before Jesus is on the cross, we get in uh, Mark 15, verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. There's that same, same phrase. Word, yeah. Wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, we go to Psalm 22. Uh, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for uh, he delights in him. We have that same exact thing going on. We skip to verse 12 here in Psalm 22. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening, ravening? That's not a word I've, Ravenous, I've ever heard. Maybe. Yeah, no, it, it, it says ravening. Oh. Ravening, ravenous, I'll say ravenous. Ravenous and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Um, interesting detail here about crucifixion is the um, kind of the theory on why people would die when they were crucified. It wasn't so much about blood loss or not having enough to eat because um, you're just kind of hanging there. Right. It's like, well, why would they die? Uh, the two main theories are one, because of the position of your arms as you're hanging, it would actually make it really hard to breathe. So asphyxiation is the first kind of main theory. A secondary theory about why someone would die when they were crucified, uh, which has some support, is uh, heart failure. Because they would constantly be pulling themselves up oh, so that breathe, they yeah. could breathe. That combined with just the the incredible stress of the whole process in being surrounded by people who are mocking you and who want you dead and just everything about the process would lead to heart failure. Um, and here, uh, King David is, is basically describing heart failure. He says, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Mm -hmm. So there again, we have another image of crucifixion and the consequences of it. Uh, and then the next line, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death. There's another small correlation here with the crucifixion account in Mark. Verse 35 said, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. 
and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, putting it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. So we have this, this idea that his mouth's dried out. He's not, right. he needs something to drink. We get that same thing here in, in Psalm 22. Uh, going now to, to verse 16 in Psalm 22. And dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I mean, that's pretty clear. Right yeah. There. <laughs> you don't even need to go to the market. Yeah, they've, they've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots, which is another detail in yep. Mark that we get. They're casting lots for his clothing. Um, an interesting thing about crucifixion. So the history of crucifixion, it was invented by uh, the Persians, the Persian empire, not really widely used until about 400 BC, mm -hmm. which... Romans really made it popular. The Romans made it popular. So the the what we it's it's a terrible way to describe it, but the perfection of crucifixion in in the sense that it's being used widely and it's effective uh really happened about 100 years before Jesus and we know historically that this was written well before. Yeah, even even if you're taking the latest date that you can possibly take on the con composition of the Psalms, it's much earlier yeah, than 100 it's, it's years. Yeah, it's in Babylon, Christ. right? Yeah. But even even most scholars today would say it's it's over at least a, a 5 century writing period that the mm -hmm. Psalms are written. Those of us who take um kind of take it at its word for when things were written would say it's more like a thousand years. Mm -hmm. The course the, you know, there's, um, I think the earliest Psalm we talked about it's this. Moses. I yeah. Believe. Moses. Yeah. It's like Psalm 90 or something. I don't remember um, which one it is. Yeah. Uh, but that would have been 1500 or so before Christ. And then the last Psalms were written just post exile. Right. So, um, even if you're a very skeptical scholar, this is clearly describing crucifixion. And we pretty much know that this Psalm was written hundreds if not more than that, years before crucifixion was invented or popularized. Right. So an amazing description um, and, and true prophecy of, of crucifixion, Jesus on the cross, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then at the end, the final kind of prophetic point of this psalm in verse 27 uh, describes the result of God's salvation to this person whose hands and feet have been pierced. In verse 27, we have all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Then skipping to verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That sounds a lot like the church spreading it does. throughout the it world. Does. It sounds like the church exploding after Jesus is raised from the dead. The the result of this terrible thing that's happened to um, first David, but then to Christ. Mm -hmm. um, I love Psalm 22. It, I read through it every once in a while and then go read Mark just to see all those parallels right. and how clearly it describes crucifixion hundreds of years before it even existed in history. Yeah, it's really it's really faith building to see how God's plan is working together, and you can't even it's it's impossible to argue with this one. Yeah. It's like no, like it's clearly 
it's almost for sure what it's describing and it is for sure written long before christ was ever yeah. around yes what a faith-filled building psalm i love psalm 22 yeah. psalm well, 23 yeah we're running up on time so we're yeah, gonna have yeah. to rush to these last psalm, two <laughs> psalm 23 um the only the only thing i'm going to say read it it is beautiful it's a, a psalm describing the lord as David's shepherd as our shepherd. Mm. Um, I have something pastorally I've started doing with people who are struggling with a particular thing is having them go meditate on a specific psalm. Oh, yeah. I found that to be really helpful. There was a, a moment recently where someone was um, had reached out to me who is having trouble dealing with some sin in their life that they'd repented of, but they still felt a lot of shame about. Mm -hmm. And I told them to go meditate on Psalm 51, where David is repenting right. of his his sin, sleeping with Bathsheba and having her husband sent to the front lines. Just some killed. adultery and murder. Yeah, yeah, adultery and murder. I'm yeah. like, this is what this is about. But that was so helpful for them just to sit and meditate on the Psalms and pray through the Psalms. So if you're someone who's struggling with anxiety uh, or really going through anything that would rob you of peace in your life. I encourage you to meditate on the words of Psalm 23, mm -hmm. pray through it. Um, we unfortunately don't have the melodies, so you can't really sing through it and it wouldn't probably wouldn't work in English anyway. But although, I mean, there are some really good, uh, I mean, Psalm 23 is a classic for a reason. It so is, there yeah. are some really good worship songs where they go through all the lines of Psalm 23. Um, and I just, I just listened to one by uh, Celtic Worship, I believe that was like, oh yeah, I was like, this. Is, I love their stuff. It's, it's, really, it's, it's so good. It's just nice and peaceful. It's uh -huh. a good time. It's. I think we both enjoy. Um, you're a nerd. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and you love adventure and and. Um, like the Lord of the Rings, you're a big oh, Lord yeah. of the Rings guy. Um, I, I loved playing video games growing up where it was very adventurous. And I love soundtracks to those video games mm -hmm. where it's just like, I'm, I'm exploring a world and something about the, the Celtic, Celtic yeah, Celtic it, worship has that vibe. It's true. Yeah. yeah. It feels foreign in a, in a really fun way. It does. Yeah. Uh, Psalm 24, we're going to do this one real quick, just for the sake of time. Um, a couple verses I highlighted starting in verse three, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Uh, the hill of the Lord could mean a couple things here. One, one way we could conceptualize that is uh, ancient people would often think of, maybe not so literally, but think of uh, deities living on top of a mountain. Right. Like that's a big deal. You look at the Pantheon. Yeah, the Greek um, gods. Yeah, the Greek this. gods. They're, they're always conceptualized as kind of living up on a hill or in the heavens, you know, somewhere above us. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it could just be a, a way of describing where God exists, or it could mean Jerusalem because Jerusalem is literally kind of on a hill. Yep. Z Zion. Yeah. Famously. Zion. <laughs> yes. Um, and then it says, who shall stand in his holy place? So the question we're asking is uh, who is the person who will be invited to live with God in his presence. And the answer to that is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Interesting note about the description of the people who will be able to ascend the hill and live uh, in the presence of God is it doesn't describe a race of people. It's almost like it's going to be open to everyone. Yeah. (laughs) It describes like those who are those who are under the covenant of Jacob in this sense are those who have clean hands and a pure heart and seek the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not about a people. It's about like in a, in a racial sense. Yeah. It is about um, the state of someone's heart as they approach the Lord in faith. There you go. No, I think that's great. Yeah. Well, we're going to, we're going to swap you back out for Nathan here as we get to the, uh, the application portion and, and talk a little bit about what we learned today, but Hey, Thanks for coming back and and deep diving into a a really interesting psalm that connects to the gospel. You're welcome. Okay. Well, that actually wraps it up for all of our Bible study stuff today. And so uh, when it comes to applications, I I can't help but think of anything else other than we have no right to boast. (laughs) And I think think it's such an easy thing for us to get caught up in is to be really self-righteous Christians who it's like, yeah, I'm living a good life and I'm so much better than so-and-so. Um, and what did Paul say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all who are justified are justified through faith. It's, yeah. it's not because of anything that we've earned. Um, and so I just, I think it's just a reminder for us to stay humble that the, uh, I think it was Brendan Manning who said the, uh, and I shouldn't attribute this quote because I'm paraphrasing it anyway, but um, basically the idea is that we're not any better than the unsaved. We're just telling them where, where they can, where they can find salvation. Yeah. Uh, we're not offering it to them. And it just makes me think of the, I, I love old hymns cause I'm just, an, I'm just an old soul that way, I suppose. But uh, in the hymn, Jesus paid it all. The, one of the last lines is, and when before the throne, I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Or in other words, when we stand before God, all we're going to be able to declare is that Jesus died for me mm-hmm. and, that, and that's why I'm saved. So I think it's an important thing to remember in the here and now, it's an important thing to remember to keep us humble. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think um, the reading for this week, the contrast between these Levitical purity laws and how... Um, how it makes so obvious that we're so far from being able to be even be in God's presence. Uh, that contrasted with Acts and Romans, with the Holy Spirit indwelling in his people, like not, not just us being able to be around his presence, but him living in us and doing his works through us. Um, that contrast shows you how much happened in the middle, how much Jesus' sacrifice um, did and how worthy um, he was in order to bring us from not being able to go anywhere near God to God working in us and through us. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. All right. Well, we had a couple questions come in this week, so we're going to take a moment and answer those. All right. We're actually going to do two this week. So uh, I have the first question is I have been listening to Let's Read the Bible for quite some time now. And even though I do not know you personally, I feel like you are a trustworthy source to turn to with my question. So thank you for that. Um, it's funny. When I first read this, I read that as even though I do not like you personally. And I was <laughs> like, whoa, what did I do? But then I, I reread it. and I was like, oh, okay. I, I see it now. Um, and so uh, it says uh, to turn to with my question and maybe you can enlighten me or your other listeners if they are wondering the same thing. I have the ESV study Bible. Great study Bible. Yeah. I love that one. Uh, and I noticed some Bible verses are missing in Matthew, for example, 1721 and 1811. Why is this? Mm-hmm. I hope to hear from you soon. Uh, okay. Well, you're not going crazy. They are missing. Yeah. Uh, there's also more than that. 
So there's there's a there's quite a few examples of this. Uh, so here's what happened. So I uh, I feel like have you ever watched that show Monk? The yeah. Detective? That's what I just I said that pop. Here's what happened. I said that popped into my mind. Uh, anyway, so the verse numbering system is is basically based off of the KGV and what we have in English. So all English translations are using that chapter and number system because it's just it would be way too confusing if mm-hmm. every single Bible had different chapters and numbers because we would never know what we're talking about. Um, but the modern English translations are, and this is where it gets confusing because the KJV is super, the King James version is super old. Uh, modern English translations are much newer, but the modern English translations are working off of manuscript manuscripts that are much older yeah. than what the King James translators had access to. Um, and so with the manuscripts that they had at the time, there were some verses added in that seems it seems like they're just kind of theological points that people added in over translation, which for yeah. me is a big no-no. Like, hey, just keep yeah. the words of scripture the way that they are. Um, but the, a they're never anything that major, usually. Um, mm-hmm. but we've since then discovered older Greek manuscripts, particularly of the New Testament, is where yeah. most of these are going to come up. Uh, and so because of that, w- the the default position of pretty much all the modern translations, except for I think the New King James keeps them all in. Um, but the default position of the rest of them is we should go with whatever the oldest manuscripts say, and that's what we should include in the Bible. Uh, but because of the numbering system, instead of taking out the verse and then making every subsequent verse come one back, because again, that would be really confusing for people, they just take it out is, yeah. is the reason. Yeah. And um, I... I originally started asking these questions. I'm going to go into Catholicism for my answer oh. for a little bit there, um, and it might be a little weird. But I was I was asking the questions a, a while ago of um, one of the biggest distinguishing factors between us and Catholicism is Catholicism believes in the authority of the church in a in a more extreme context than we do, where we hold um, scripture in in that exclusive authority um, in Catholicism. Uh, they, the church has that same authority uh, to do certain things. And so that caused me to ask the question of it's like, okay, um, the, the Catholic church originally gave us the, the canonized um, New Testament. Um, and we believe that the, the canonized New Testament is a higher authority than the Catholic church. So at some point we had to trust the authority of the church to give us the authority of the scripture. And I was trying to figure out sure. uh, what exactly that meant. And so I started looking into how did we get the New Testament? How was it canonized? Um, and the truth is the canonization of the the New Testament, and that's just putting it together, like taking all of these different writings and establishing this as uh, God-breathed scripture. And then shooting it out of a large iron tube. Exactly. Just kidding. <laughs> no. Um, all that was, was a scholarly attempt to preserve the writings of the apostles. That's what they were trying to do. And so um, through, through, the, through that canonization, um, they established our New Testament scripture, and then later down the line, as Evan said, found that, oh, wait, there are a couple bits and pieces here that we don't actually believe were written by the apostles. And because of that, some of the translations just choose, chose to remove those trying to stick to the writings of the apostles exclusively. Yeah. So there you go. Hopefully that answers your question. A lot of study Bibles will, I'm, I'm kind of surprised the ESV didn't note that because um, there's yeah. other there's other parts where they'll put it in brackets or something and say, hey, earliest manuscripts don't yes. have this. Um, when it's little things like a single sentence or like even some of them are just kind of add-ons to a sentence, they'll usually just kind of, I guess they'll just kind of cut it out and maybe maybe there's a footnote somewhere that's really small and hard to find. But yeah. anyway, there you go. That's why. So uh, I would 
I've been super deep diving into Bible translations recently just because I've been nerding out about it. Um, so Mark Ward is a YouTuber. Oh. Um, he actually lives up in Mount Vernon. So oh, I was like, cool. I should just go. What's up, Mark? I should just go up to Mount Vernon and see if I see him on the street somewhere. Probably not. I don't know if that's how things work. <laughs> just kidding. Anyway, uh, but he he's a Bible translator. He does Bible translation. And so cool. his whole um, YouTube channel is uh, talking about what makes a good, a good translation, what makes a bad one. Uh, and then he talks a lot about why are there things that are in the King James version of the Bible and not in other translations. So really helpful mm. if you want to dive a little bit deeper into it as well. All right. So question two. It says, I have a question. In Exodus, when God is giving Moses the instructions for constructing the tabernacle, the cherubim are mentioned in several places, like to be carved on the top of the Ark of the Covenant and to be embroidered into different panels and curtains of the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. My question is, did Moses and the skilled craftsmen, you put that in quotes, I'm a little bit harsh on the craftsmen, but okay. Skilled, skilled craftsmen. Apparently. Uh, just kidding. So who were uh, who were there to do the embroidery work? Do they know what the cherubim looked like? Did God reveal to Moses what cherubim looked like? I'm just wondering if God told Moses, uh, and then Moses told the craftsman, hey, make a cherubim, or if the craftsman, and the craftsman said, oh yeah, I know what that is, no problem. Uh, super interesting question. Yeah. I've never thought about this before. So uh, the short answer is, I don't know, but we can, we can kind of take a guess. <laughs> yes. Um, so we see a cherubim described really early on in Genesis chapter three, and there's no other descriptor given. So that's, it says, uh, he drove out the man at the, at the east of the garden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away every, that turned every way to guard the tree of life. So this is when God closes Eden off from Adam and Eve. He places a cherubim there to, to, um, to stand guard. Mm -hmm. Um, because in that text, there's no description given, it seems like when Moses is writing this down and when the story is being passed down, that they just understood what this was mm -hmm. because it, it, there's no need yeah. to feel like we have to explain what a cherubim is. So I, I think that is the answer that this is just a... Um, it's a creature that the Israelites would have been familiar with. Um, and I believe, I don't, don't quote me on this, but I believe a cherubim existed in the imaginations of kind of the whole Near East. I don't think mm -hmm. it was a specifically Israelite thing. I think other nations had the this idea of what a cherubim would be. Um, and so this would seem to hint that the people reading would have actually had an image of what was in their minds before reading. And then you can contrast this with Ezekiel um, who describes cherubim, mm -hmm. but he seems to need, he seems to feel the need to explain what they would have been like. Um, and then and it, because of, because of how they would be different from what the Israelites imagined. So this is Ezekiel yeah. 10, 14. It says, and everyone had four faces and the face was the first face was the face of a cherub. So already there, he's making the assumption, you know what a cherub is. I'm explaining this. Uh, but then he goes, the second face was a human face. The third face was the face of a lion. And the fourth was the face of an eagle. Uh, so it seems like this is kind of a different sort of cherubim than what the people would have imagined. So Ezekiel feels the need to explain what they looked like. But even in that explanation, he's making the assumption that you know what a normal cherub would look like. Here's how it's different. So I don't know, I don't know Nathan, if you have anything to add no, there. No, that's great. Love the question. These are some of my favorite questions when it's like something I would have never thought to think yeah. about before. So it's, it's, it's fun to dive into the Bible a little bit in that way. All right. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, uh, we would love for you to do that. You can do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>